The text for today is Mark 6, 45 to 56. I encourage you to get your sermon notes out. If you would uh, follow along with the message, you can get those in the description of the YouTube video. Scroll up a little bit our online portal to get them, or if you're listening to this later on podcast, you can find the notes in the uh, episode notes of the podcast. I'll read the text for us, and then we can get into the study. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. He was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly after dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the gospel of the Lord. So just like last week, we have a really juicy text of of Jesus' life, a text that has been preached uh, numerous times and with good reason, because there's a lot for us to learn in it. So my strategy for today is I want to walk back through the text with you and kind of introduce a couple points that I actually want you to study in your life groups, in the life group discussion questions that are on the backside of your note sheet this week. Um, So you can get the depth out of those questions that we don't really have time for in today's message. And then I want to give you three big application points from this text at the end. So let's let's walk back through the text and just kind of see what's happening here and get the feel for for the text. Um, The text starts this way. It says, immediately... Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Uh, Mark uses this word immediately quite a bit. It's usually as a connection point between two narratives. So in this case, when he says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, he wants you to remember what has just happened right before this, which is the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that we studied last week. Uh, Every commentator that I read on this text says you have to read these two texts together. You have to have them in context um, because Mark is very obviously connecting them. If the word immediately were not enough for you, just go a little bit farther into the text where the disciples don't understand what's happening and Mark says that it's because they did not understand about the loaves. In other words, like what Jesus had done in the feeding of the 5,000, that was necessary for them to understand what he was doing when he walked on the water. So we have to have these two stories connected as we read this story of Jesus walking on the water. Now, if you've been with us through this entire series on the Gospel of Mark, you maybe remember back to Mark chapter 4 when something very similar to this happened. Jesus spent a good chunk of time teaching. He was telling parables about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God completely depended on him. And then he sent his disciples out in the boat onto the lake. This time he was in the boat with them and a storm came up on the lake. And if you remember back to to Mark four, what we said at that moment was that Jesus was testing his disciples. Well, the exact same thing is happening here. Jesus has been teaching the feeding of the 5,000 and now he's going to test his disciples. 
Now, if you want to think a little bit more deeply into this idea of God testing us, I'm not going to rehash it here because I already taught it in Mark 4, so you can go back and listen to the sermon on Mark 4. But what I do think we need to remember and maybe just keep reiterating to ourselves is the understanding that God doesn't just tell you things so that you can know them. He tells you things so that you can use them. I think it can be easy for us to come to God's word, whether it's in a sermon or it's you know, reading the Bible in our house uh, by ourselves, and we can take in the information, we can know what is true, but then it has no effect on our life. An analogy I've used before is it's like downloading, not installing a program. You can have the information, you can store it, but you're not using it. And this is really important for us as Christians. Um, especially in our culture where you can essentially be a cultural nominal Christian just because your parents were Christian or you went to church a couple times when you were growing up or you kind of think you're a Christian because you're maybe not really anything else. Um, That is not Christianity. Christianity is hearing God's word and it having an effect on you. And so that's why I encourage you to take notes regularly because it's not enough for you to just know these stories. These stories have to sink deep into your heart and become operating principles for your life because Jesus is going to test you. He's going to send you into situations where these words are necessary for you. And if you don't have these words, you don't have to have them memorized, but you you don't understand what Jesus is teaching you, you are not going to be prepared for those moments. You're going to be like the disciples who did not understand about the loaves and therefore were terrified when Jesus sent a test on them. So if you haven't got your notes out yet, now's a good time to do it. But don't just take notes. I would encourage you then to meditate on those notes throughout the week. Maybe review them a couple times, pray over them regularly, talk about them with your life group or with your spouse at home or a trusted friend. Let's practice these things because the way you get ready for a test is by practicing. It's not just by reading the textbook once. You you go over these things again and again, and that's how you get prepared for the tests that God gives us. After Jesus sends his disciples out into the boat, it tells us that he dismissed the crowd. Now, I think there are a couple interesting things about this. First of all, uh, we don't get it so much in Mark's gospel, but in the other gospels, we find out the reason that Jesus has to dismiss the crowd is because they want to make him their king. I mean, think about it. He's just fed 5,000 plus people. I mean, people are really into getting their basic everyday needs met. They'll basically elect anybody who will offer them a couple bucks. So the same is true in Jesus' case. And, and so they're trying, people are trying to make Jesus a king, but Jesus is going to have none of it because what Jesus doesn't want are, are large crowds who are gathered around him because he's some sort of divine sugar daddy. He, he wants a relationship, a disciple relationship where you're willing to learn and be tested and continue to follow him. This is an important point for us to think about as the Christian church, especially post-pandemic, because it is becoming increasingly easy for people who have a half-hearted faith to push themselves away from the church. And that might be a little bit intimidating for us, like to think that, you know, maybe a year or two from now, our congregation might have shrunk in numbers. The crowds are essentially being dismissed, right? Because their hearts aren't in it. But actually, that's a really good thing for creating a loving, tight-knit, gospel-focused, encouraging community. I actually look forward to the next couple of years of ministry here in Mississauga because I think what, what's going to happen to our congregation if we're willing to invest in it and press, and press down into it is that we're going to love each other even more deeply. We're going to be more involved in each other's life. We're going to care more about studying God's word together. 
Because we're going to realize this isn't something that we do because it's easy. It's something that we do because it's what we need in these dark times. Another interesting thing about this is the word that is translated dismissed here is the Greek word apoluo, which is, it's fine to translate it as dismissed. And I I understand why the translators translated it this way, but apoluo is also the word that is used whenever we talk about forgiveness. So if we forgive somebody, we apoluo them. Now, I really want you to wrestle with this word in your life groups, but like, what does it mean that the word for dismiss and forgive are the same word? And how does that affect this text and how you read it? It'd be an interesting thing for you to wrestle with in your life groups this week. So after Jesus dismisses the crowd, he goes up on a mountainside to pray, which should remind us how seriously Jesus takes his prayer life. I mean, just think of the context of this. Um, I've never preached to and fed subsequently uh, more than 5,000 people. But I can tell you that after preaching to like 100 people on a Sunday morning, all I want to do is go home and sit. Um, It wears me out. So I can't imagine what Jesus is feeling as far as just his emotional and, and physical capacity at this point. But then you also have to remember that this is in the context of John the Baptist being beheaded. So not only is Jesus like struggling physically and emotionally, he's, he's trying to mourn through his cousin's death. And yet Jesus still makes time to go pray. Um, I don't know if you struggle with this. Personally, I struggle with this a lot. I find it easy to dismiss my prayer life for any number of reasons. I'm too tired. I don't have time. I have something better to do. I might even be doing really good things, Right. I don't know if you struggle with that, but that's something that this really convicts me because even if, if, if Jesus can go and, and find time to pray, even when he's in like the most challenging of circumstances, why aren't I doing that? And then to take this maybe a step higher, like as we think about our province reopening and our ability to come back to in-person worship, I wonder if we're going to be tempted to neglect our prayer life. And by prayer life, I don't just mean our like, private, in our bedroom, hands folded, eyes closed, prayer life. I mean, our our corporate prayer life, our life together here, worshiping God. Are we going to neglect that? Because it's going to be easy to make a whole lot of excuses. I'm still nervous about the virus. I don't have time. It's easier to not get the kids all dressed. I don't have to drive that far. I don't have to put pants on. Whatever it's going to be for you, is, is there going to be an excuse that's going to lead you to neglect the corporate prayer life of the church? I hope not. Because while online worship is not wrong, it's not sinful, it's also not right. It's not the way God prescribed for his people to gather. And so I pray that that we as a congregation are unique in our community in that we say we are going to make in-person prayer together a priority every week. We're going to stand up against the culture. We're going to stand up against the temptations to fear that Satan give us. And we're going to worship together. And if we need to encourage each other, great, we will. We'll pray for each other. We'll call each other. But let's all push for that together. When Jesus is done praying, he looks out into the lake. And in the middle of the lake, the boat is straining against the wind that is against it. Uh, The reason I highlight the phrase, the middle of the lake, is because sometimes uh, critics of the Bible will look at this text and they'll say, well, Jesus didn't actually walk on the water. Uh, He was probably walking on the beach and it was like an optical illusion. You know, the the disciples, they're in this crazy storm. They're not really sure what they're seeing. Uh, Absolutely not. The text is clear. He was in the middle of the lake. Um, And and therefore, we can't say that that, uh, 
this was an optical illusion of, of any sort. Um, can you just advance the slide for me, please, Steve? Steve I lost connection here. Thanks. Um, so Jesus looks out at those disciples and sees them. They're straining at the oars. And the word straining there in Greek is a little bit more vivid than, than what we maybe see here. The word is, is more like torture. So the disciples are out there and they are just like beaten down by the storm because the wind is against them as they struggle with the oars. And so Jesus walks down the mountain, walks out onto the lake and is about to pass by them. And what Mark's doing here is the same thing that he's been doing for the entire gospel that we've been studying him. He's been saying time and time again, Jesus is God, right? And maybe it's, it's really easy to see that at first. You're like, well, he's walking on water. Like that's a unique thing that only God can do. And you're right. That's definitely something that Mark is trying to drive home for you. But he's actually going a step further with this text because what he is doing is showing Jesus to be God by quoting the Old Testament. So in the book of Job, chapter 9, Job says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Um, that phrase, treads on the waves of the sea, in Greek is the exact same phrase that Mark uses here when he says Jesus is walking on the lake. And then he includes this detail, Mark does, that Jesus was about to pass by them, which maybe seems like sort of a random detail if you're just reading the story. But this is actually another quote from that same chapter in Job, Job 9:11, where Job says, when God passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. And so in Job's context, Job was going through suffering. Maybe you remember Job's story, his, his house and his family and his body and his possessions were all afflicted by, by a testing that God brought on him. And what Job says is, I'm in all this suffering. I'm feeling this pain. I'm straining. I'm, I'm feeling tortured. But I don't know where God is. I don't feel God's presence. I can't even see God. And if he were to pass by me, I wouldn't recognize him. But then transpose that into what Mark says. Mark says that, that, they were, that Jesus was about to pass by them. And, and what did they do? They saw him. What Mark is doing is he's contrasting these two texts. And he's saying, a man who is in suffering knew that God could walk on water, but could not perceive God, that God was hidden to him. He could not understand him. But now, having come the person of Jesus Christ, God can walk on water, and when we see him, we perceive him. We understand who he is. It brings new meaning to those words that Jesus says to his disciples in John's gospel when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or what Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, the fullness of the deity, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Like the incarnation, the idea that God would, would come and make himself human so we could see him and touch him. That's a completely unique idea in all of religion, but it's also massively important for our understanding that, that God has come to save us. Not to on high give us a proclamation of how we can earn our salvation, but to come and pick us up and carry us into the arms of God because we could not do it ourselves. And now we can perceive him. We can see him. We can, we can take and eat his body and blood to be one with him. That's the beauty of the incarnation and what Mark is trying to get you to see here. Unfortunately, the disciples don't perceive Jesus. They think he is a ghost which is the Greek word phantasma, uh, where we get our English word fantasy. 
the, the idea was a spiritual being. So kind of the category of like angels and demons would all be phantasma. They see Jesus and, and they don't really think he's a real person. They think he's some sort of fantasy, uh, some spiritual being that, that they, uh, they can't really understand. So they cry out, they're terrified of him. But, but then Jesus speaks to them. And first he says, take courage. Uh, take courage is maybe a little bit too soft for what the Greek word says here. Take courage kind of feels like, you know, fuck up guys, you can do it. Um, the word there is, um, is one Greek word, tharsaita. And it's kind of the word that you would use to like rally your troops. If you're a general with your army, like if, if I can make up an English word, it's like courageify, like I'm going to put courage into you. Um, Jesus is, is saying, guys, you can now have all the courage that you need. Why? He says, it is I, which is about as Shakespeare as Jesus can get. Um, but unfortunately, it's not what he said. He said, ego I me in Greek, which is I am. Which makes you think, especially if you're in my Exodus Bible class right now, how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses asked, who shall I say sent me to you? God says, I am. And so what, what Jesus is saying, if I can sort of colloquialize it a little bit, is men, man up, because I'm God and I'm here. Beautiful, powerful words, right? And we're going to unpack those words a little bit later in one of the bigger applications. But right after this, Jesus then climbs into the boat. The storm dies down, but they don't get it. Right? Because they said, because the, the text tells us they had not understood about the loaves. They did not understand what Jesus had done. And so they didn't understand what he was doing. So that's the text. Now I want to give you three big application points for today. So if you're taking notes along with us, um, that's, that's the, uh, the three points in our notes section. You can follow along with me here. The three points are the chaos of life, the presence of God, and the necessity of the word. Chaos of life, presence of God, necessity of the word. Uh, so first, the chaos of life. I think one of the things we have to understand when we see Jesus doing his miracles is that they are not random. Uh, I think I thought this as a child. Like I, I would read through the, the miracles of Jesus and I, I started to think, hey, you know, guy, you should, you should diversify your portfolio of miracles. Like you kind of just do miracles having to do with food and health and water. <laughs> but that's very much on purpose. Think about it. Why would Jesus do miracles about just food and health and water? Well, first food. He does miracles having to do with food because he is God who provides for all needs. We learned that last time. We learned that he is, he's providing for our physical needs regularly and he's, he's also providing for our spiritual needs in the Lord's Supper. And why would he care about health? Well, because he is here to bring abundant life that we may have life and have it to the full. And part of the brokenness of being sinful people is that not only are we dying, but we're sick as we die. And so Jesus brings a little foretaste of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like, a place where there is no sickness, no more pain, no more frustration, no death. We're going to live and live and never die the way that we were always meant to. But then why water? If you don't understand the connection to water in Jesus' miracles, it's probably because you're, well, like me, a land lover. <laughs> Even if you're a recreational boater, uh, you know that water is dangerous. Uh, there's a reason you put a life jacket on your kids, even if you're in a, a small northern Ontario lake. 
because you know that water is more dangerous than being on land. There's something about the water, even though it's, it's fun and it's beautiful and it's mesmerizing, that it's also very dangerous. Now take that a step further. In the first century, the, the people who would go on water had nowhere near the safety equipment that we have today to go on water. Their boats were less durable and they didn't have maps like we have where they could see all the different areas of the Sea of Galilee. You can even imagine this. These guys who were, these fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, they, they maybe had never seen the shape of the Sea of Galilee. And on top of that, they don't have the advanced meteorology equipment that we have to know when a storm is going to come up. And while they could sense it somewhat because they knew how clouds worked and that sort of thing, they, they still weren't as certain as we were that there's a thunderstorm coming through. And so being out on the water during a thunderstorm was an absolutely terrifying thing. But now add some cultural elements to this. Uh, the Jews particularly were a land-dwelling people. They were not on the sea very often. And it, many of their enemies, in fact, came from the sea. They thought of the Mediterranean Sea as the place where the rest of the world is who are coming to attack us. Now, the Philistines, if you know that name from your Old Testament study, they were particularly a seafaring people who came against Israel. And then on top of that, from a spiritual point of view, uh, the waters were considered kind of the, the place of chaos evil. Uh, because as you can understand, water is not very easily controlled, especially in a, a lake or an ocean. It, it goes wherever it wants to go. It's pushed everywhere. And, and if you get in the wrong current, you can be taken under by it. And so in, in the spiritual mind of the Jews, that was a, a place of chaos and evil. And so import all of that into what Jesus is doing when he calms the storm back in Mark 4 and when he walks on the water here in Mark 6. Maybe it also brings new meaning to uh, the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation where Jesus shows John what life looks like from his perspective. And he says that there is a sea, but it is like glass. There are no waves on it at all. It's not chaos. It's not evil because Christ is in control. And then, and then at the end of Revelation, when the new heavens and the new earth appear, there's this little note that you, you maybe just pass by, but it says there was no longer any sea. There was no longer even the capability of chaos or evil to be there. That's the promise that we have in the resurrection someday. But then come back to, to what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter six. This chaotic and dark and, and dangerous place Jesus walks on it like it's a shag carpet. Like Jesus says, the most dangerous, scary thing that, that you can see, that thing that you can't control, I trample that. Now, I want to bring this home for us a little bit. Is there chaos or evil in your life right now that you're dealing with? Maybe it's personal. It's a relationship with your spouse or with a friend. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's, it's larger than that. Maybe it's national or global. You, you look at vaccines or, or COVID restrictions or what's happening in India or social justice issues or critical race theory. And you look at these things and, and you think you kind of know what to do, but you're not totally sure. And there are people who you respect who are on the opposite side and they seem to make a good argument. And then there's all these ethical concerns on top of this. And maybe you feel like that. Uh, if I can get personal with you, I was feeling that this Thursday. I was taking a walk with my wife, and um, I don't particularly handle my emotions well sometimes, and I just kind of let loose. Not at her, just kind of at the world. Because it was, 
you know, our, our move and the girls and the pandemic and my ministry and my health and, and all our congregation and all these things. And I just felt like I had no control over any of them. They were all chaotic and I hated it. And I'm not saying that so that you feel pity for me. I'm, I'm sure that many of you are going through far worse things than I'm going through. I'm blessed in many ways, but the point is to show you my heart in understanding this text for you. Like what God is showing us here is that the chaos that you probably feel in many aspects of your life right now, that is not something that is foreign to the scriptures or foreign to Jesus. In fact, do you remember why they're out in that storm? Because Jesus sent them there. Jesus put them into that chaos. So you have to ask yourself, why? Every one of us wants to control the world around us. We want to have some control over at least, you know, what we're going to do with our evenings or where we're going to work, how much money we're going to make, how our spouse is going to act, what our retirement's going to look like, how our kids are going to behave. We try to control just about everything in life, but the, the fact of the matter is we control barely anything. And you don't have to be a religious person to believe that. I mean, even if you don't believe in God, how much of your life do you actually control the outcomes? And so what Jesus is trying to get the disciples and us to see is the chaos of life. That life is by its very nature uncontrollable, like a sea during a storm. And that it would be foolish to, to try to grab it, to try to control it, to try to fix it so that it works for us. What would be wiser is to understand his presence in it. So, point number two, the presence of God. The first thing you need to notice about when Jesus walks out to them on the lake is how they react. They're terrified. They think he's a ghost. Which should teach us that very often when Jesus steps into the chaos of our life, we are at first terrified by him. Let me see if I can explain to you that how this happens. And we get into like a, a crazy situation that we're not really sure that we can control. And then maybe it's a pastor or a trusted Christian friend or something we read in the Bible that challenges us and says, here's how you're supposed to operate in that situation. And we think to ourselves, absolutely not. I'm going to operate that way. That makes it worse. Let me give you some tangible examples. What if, what if God is allowing you to stay single and putting you in relationships that you keep getting dumped from because he wants you to realize that you have idolized marriage and that maybe you would be far more beneficial to the people of your congregation, the people of your community, if you weren't married, if you spent time investing in his word so you can be a blessing to other people. That might be terrifying. <laughs> if you want to get married, the thought that I could never get married, that might be terrifying, but Actually, the Bible is unique among world religions in saying that actually being a single person can be a huge blessing. What if, what if God leaves you in your financial difficulty because he knows you don't actually trust him with your money? And he's continuing to challenge you to actually trust him with your money. And you might think to yourself, hold on, like I barely have enough money to pay bills or to get groceries or to do this or that. God says, yeah, I know, but I'm calling you to be generous. 
calling you to be generous with your church. I'm calling you to be generous with your community, with other people who are in need, and you watch how I'm going to provide for you. That might be terrifying for some of you. That's what Jesus calls us to. What if the reason that you're lonely, you don't have a lot of close relationships, is that God is pushing you to share the gospel with somebody who is eventually going to become your best friend. He's leaving you in that loneliness so that you'll actually take the time to invest in another person, build a relationship that's not based on whether you like that person or whether you love that person because Jesus loves them. And that might be terrifying to put yourself out there like that, to try to make a friendship, to, to love somebody unconditionally. It's what Jesus calls us to. Take it to a corporate level. What if, what if God allowed a pandemic to happen because he saw the North American Christian church essentially operating like a business. We create products, we ship the product, we try to get as many people to buy into the product as possible. And the pandemic not only took away much of our means of production, but also made it impossible for us to gather large crowds together. Because what God wanted from his church was not a production of spiritual commodities, but personal relationships and discipleship between Christians. That may be terrifying to get out of my comfort zone, to be in a life group, to, to do life with somebody else, to see them every week, to share my dark secrets with them, to forgive them and pray for them and encourage them. That's what God calls us to. You notice Jesus, when he comes down from the mountain, he doesn't stop a storm from the mountain or even as he stands on the water. He continues to let the storm rage around the disciples as he stands there and says, take courage, I am. I wonder if some of us need to hear today that the storm that you're in, God's not necessarily going to get you out of it, but he's going to stand in the middle of it, look you in the eye and say, I'm God, you're not. And that truth, that can change your life. Because suddenly the chaos that's all around you, you don't have to solve it. You don't have to make it better. The one who controls winds and waves, that's, that's his problem. Your job is simply to trust that he is God and you are not. The presence of God can terrify us, but it also can give us that amazing comfort. That God is with us in the storms. That he's not an out there God. He's not a, a spiritually aloof God. He's with us in the Lord's Supper, in his word, in the presence of other Christians. He is physically with us so that we can know that we have a protector and a provider and someone who stands up for us, who is above all others. Maybe you know this, you've experienced this during the pandemic. It's not the same not being together physically. It's great to encourage each other on Zoom calls or phone calls, but when you're crying and you need someone's physical arm around you and you can't have that, it's devastating. But that's not Christianity. Our God is a God who is present. Our God is a God who comes physically to be with us. And so as, as we as a congregation believe that, let's also be like our Savior, and when we see others in the storms of life, we come into that and encourage them 
and remind them that they are not God, but there is a God who is on their side. And so then we have to get the last piece of this, and that's the necessity of the word. I remember we can't read this text without understanding what happened in the feeding of the 5,000. Remember the disciples, they don't get it. Their hearts are hard and they're terrified because they didn't understand about the loaves. Well, what is it that they didn't understand? Well, think back to last week. What was the main point that we, we covered in that text? That Jesus is bringing a new exodus, right? We said in the same way that, that God gave his people bread from heaven, manna in the wilderness, Jesus gives them bread from him, from heaven, so that their physical needs can be satisfied. And in fact, many commentators on this text will actually say that, that what, what Mark is doing is he's just flipping the Exodus narrative. In the Exodus narrative, they go through the Red Sea, the Israelites essentially walk on water, and then they get manna and quail in the desert. And, and Mark just does the flip. He says, they got the bread, and then Jesus, Israel, walked on water. But they didn't understand that. They just thought it was a meal, maybe even a trick. What they should have understood is what Elisha understood in that text from 2 Kings. That what you see is not what God sees. That what you worry about is not what God worries about. You may look around and see the Arameans surrounding you and think there is no way out of this situation. But what you need to be reminded of is that those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. You may look at the world and you may see chaos. You may see evil. Jesus sees a storm that is as easy to calm as getting into a boat. You may look at the future for your children and worry about whether they're going to stay in the faith. God sees an amazing opportunity for them to live the Christian life in a way that, frankly, my generation and the generations above me didn't get to live because we were comfortable in our Christian faith. They're going to be challenged. They're going to know their faith. They're going to be stronger maybe than we were. Maybe you look out and you see social justice issues that on the one hand you you agree with, on the other hand you're worried about some of the implications of them. And what God sees is a chance for every person to look at their own life and say, hold on, maybe I haven't been taking into account all other people. Maybe I've been living a really narrow life and And a life that's full of, first of all, repentance to God and then therefore love to neighbor might look a little bit different. You might look at at corrupt government and say, you know, this country or another country near us is going downhill fast. Maybe what God sees is an opportunity for all the people who worship government as an idol to have their idol smashed so they can worship the true God. Maybe you look at your own financial difficulties. God sees it as a chance for you to trust in him more. Maybe you see your own mental struggles right now. God sees it as you seeing your own weakness so that you can rely on him. What God sees is not what you see. And if we're looking at the world and we're not taking into account the possibility, the potential that God can do something that we could not ask or imagine, we don't know our God. And so... As you look at the the crazy things that are happening around us today, remember just what Jesus told to his disciples. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. Repeat that that to yourself this week. I can have courage because God is. I don't have to be afraid. And so let me finish with, with two thoughts. 
One of the commentators I read on this text says that this text is a picture of the whole of Christian existence in a short little narrative. What he says is, the narrative is essentially Jesus gives a meal and then he goes away. His disciples go out into the crazy chaos of the sea. Jesus sees them in the crazy chaos of the sea, comes, tramples upon that crazy chaos, comes to them, gets in their boat, and it's calm. What is the whole of the Christian existence? Jesus gives us a meal. Take and eat. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. Then he goes away and says, I'm coming back. And while he's gone, we go into the crazy wilderness of this life where there is chaos and evil surrounding us. And we can feel that we are straining, being tortured by a wind that seems to be particularly against us. And yet what we know is that our Savior sees, our Savior hears our prayers, and he will come trampling on chaos and evil to step into our boat and make everything like glass. That's why historically the church has used the picture of a boat to describe itself. If you don't believe me, uh, many historic church buildings call the place where the people sit the nave, N-A-V-E. Nave is just the Latin word navis, which means ship. Because what the ancient Christians understood and what I think we ought to understand as well is that we're in this boat together. We maybe wouldn't have chosen to be boatmates, but we're here. And getting off of this boat, that's bad news because we're in the middle of a chaotic sea. And so you have really one option, pull together, grab the oars. And even though it feels like we're straining against the winds of culture or anti-Christian government or anti-Christian religion, keep straining because our savior is coming back. And so cross of life, I love our boat. And while maybe you wouldn't have chosen me or I maybe would not have chosen you to be on this boat together, God chose us to be here together. So let's pull together. The next couple months, the next couple of years are going to be crazy. Uh, who knows what Satan will try to do against us. But we have the comfort. God is God. We are not. Thank God for Jesus who makes that God known to us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, continue to pound the thought into our hearts that you are God and we are not. We pray that that leads us to worship you, to pray to you, to speak about you to our neighbors. Give us a peace that goes beyond understanding that only comes from your word and your sacraments. Bring us to those things regularly so that our hearts can be warmed by your presence. And then push us back into your teaching. We may know your word, that we may apply it to our lives, and it may become an operating principle for our days. We ask all those things in your name. Amen.